0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle.
1: A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
2: After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the act
1: was met.
0: That is Justice Paul Rouleau, who led the independent public inquiry into the federal government's use of the emergency act, releasing his ruling on Friday, basically saying the Trudeau government met the very high threshold, his words, not mine for invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history during the so-called Freedom Convoy protests in Ottawa a year ago. Is it the final ruling that you expected? Well, let's ask our first guest on the show. David Tarrant is his name. Vice President, National Strategic Communications with Enterprise Canada, the former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. David, hello. How are you today? Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. Did Justice Rulo make the right call here? Well,
1: listen, it's it's a divisive issue. I think the, more, the what what Justice Rulo's decision probably tracks pretty closely to Canadian public opinion on on the convoy. Uh, and you know, you might say, well, what the hell does public opinion have to do? That's not in the legislation anywhere. But you know, I think if you don't think public opinion matters here, probably you know people aren't paying attention enough. Um, you know the uh Canadians by and large uh are disenchanted with with many things that trudeau uh did uh during the pandemic uh many of the heavy-handed actions he took but con- consistently they seem to think that they felt the uh the ea was 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 measured so it seems to track pretty closely to public opinion. <laughs>
0: While Justice Rulo said the government's met the very high threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act. He also added to his ruling that I have done so with reluctance. Was his decision, do you think, sitting on a razor's edge? And do you think he was reluctant no. to side with the protesters?
1: No, uh, I, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a report. You go through the report and, and, and I'm sorry, it's pretty clear that the first thing here, that this is a report that the conclusion was written first and everything else was written afterwards. Um Rick, I know a lot of conservatives. And I know I know a lot of liberals. So this is a, uh, literally nobody who I know who is engaged in Ottawa expected anything other than this outcome. There is zero suspense. And again, I talked to people on both sides of the aisle. Everyone was pretty much saying, of course, he was going to get a pass on this. The only people who are breathlessly waiting, Rulo's. Uh, conclusion is after it was, was hanging on a knife edge are people in the media breathlessly doing it and and quite frankly you look at it every stage of the way I'd say the the uh, over the last six months Justin Trudeau's best days in the media have been when he's talking about this issue right so no I, anyone who thinks the Pmo was sweating out the last couple of weeks oh my goodness while they say the EA was not just what the only people who are angry about this, who are angry about, about 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 how he handled convoy? People who weren't voting for him anyway. This uh, this whole issue has been a gift for Justin Trudeau. So no, I think they knew from the moment they appointed this guy, from the moment he did things, the sure Party did not have standing to actually uh, to actually question people at the inquiry. The only the only critics of the government who were, actually had standing at the inquiry were the the craziest fringe of the convoy protesters. There was no mainstream criticism of of the prime minister of this convoy at every step of the way. This had, you know, I I, I don't want to go and say this was a preordained outcome, but I literally know nobody who was in any way surprised that this rule came to.
0: Yeah, certainly the writing was on the wall. Our first guest here on The Roy Green Show, David Tarrant, Vice President, National Strategic Communications with Enterprise Canada, former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Do you think, and, and here's where it gets interesting, do you think this ruling is going to make it easier for future governments to use this act rightly or wrongly?
1: Um, yes, uh, I, I mean, one of the, I think one of the most distressing things about this is, is everybody who's, who have their, so most people's strong opinions on this matter, uh, it's not based on the esoteric uh, uh, criteria in the legislation uh, in, in, in the Emergencies Act. It's about how do you feel about the protesters. And quite frankly, to the kind of the powers that be in downtown Ottawa, you know, these, this was a conservative, right-leaning protest of the kind of people that they considered, you know, uh, what did, what did Hillary Clinton call them deplorable you know a, a, a little aggressive, a little you know a, a little a little right wing for their tastes um you know it, 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 Rick if this was if this was a, an indigenous protest and in, 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 in the, in the liberals are on power it'd still be there in Ottawa right now right and the, but at the same time flip side you know a lot of conservatives who wanted to give these guys a free pass uh, in fairness there are conservatives who are who's, who 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 freak out when they see a black lives matters protest. I think we have to separate your political views about the social issues of the day from when is it right or wrong for a government to break up a protest. Um, uh, in, in this case, you know, I'm critical of the, of the prime minister on a great many things. I'm a conservative of great many things. Uh, I, I'm probably a little more nuanced than some in that there's clearly things have gone completely out of hand in Ottawa last year. Um, but, but, you know, uh, uh, most of the people who are looking, who are trying to, you know, draw big pictures out of this, quite frankly, are making their opinion based on the fact that they either supported the objectives of, of the Freedom Convoy or they loathe the people behind the Freedom Convoy. But really, the politics of the protest shouldn't matter. What really should matter is are people uh, uh, posing a threat to public safety.
0: Found it incredibly interesting that the prime minister waited until after the ruling is made to backtrack on his fringe minority comments. What did you make of that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, at, least at that person listen. In a, in a, uh, you know, while a lot of the media are, are rushing to write, you know, gushy columnists, you know, exonerating the, the, the prime minister, uh, at least, at least the Muldo uh, had to, had the, uh, you know, had to say. That yes, the prime minister directly was involved in inflaming this, right? And 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 while and while the EA may have been a regrettable but necessary step to 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 protect public safety, the fact that things spiraled out of control, in no small part, stemmed to the fact that the prime minister, for political effect, Justin Trudeau, for political effect, uh, was playing a very divisive game, and grandstanding for his own supporters by demonizing people who, who, who criticize his government as un-Canadian, as racist, as fringe, uh, as as bigoted. Um, and and that's been a political game this prime minister's been playing for years. Uh, he's really quick to assign the labels to anyone who dares criticize him, and he's created a divided country. And so at least the, uh, the, the report highlighted the fact that, you know what, this guy's rhetoric is very much part of the problem.
0: We have a couple more minutes with David Terrence, former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper, now currently the vice president, National Strategic Communications with Enterprise Canada. We're talking about the Emergencies Act ruling from Justice Paul Rouleau yesterday. He made a number of recommendations in his report as well. And, you know, he pointed some fingers at policing in particular and how, you know, all these small missteps have translated into a grand misstep. Who, at the end of the day, do you think is going to shoulder the most blame?
1: uh probably the, uh, well, just listen there's there's i don't care if you have the right i don't care if you have the left i don't care if you love or hate the prime minister or i don't care what why you feel about pierre balia i don't see there's any perspective where anyone believes the ottawa police service did anything other than completely mess this up um uh uh you know they they they're the ones who misread um the nature of the protest from day one and uh you know and, and the former chief you know uh, uh, slowly has has come under a lot of criticism for his role in this um and end of the day um if you know if law and order in a given jurisdiction gets out of hand, I think it's fair to first ask hard questions of, of local law enforcement about that. Uh, we, you know in in Canada we make a, a big deal, fair, and rightly so that politicians aren't supposed to be directing police operationally Ah, uh, the premier is not supposed to do it. The prime minister is not supposed to do it. Uh, so the role of politicians and politics in this, I think, can be overstated. Um, but it, it's hard for anyone, for me, to see how any how, how anyone comes of this sounding worse than uh, than the Ottawa Police Service.
0: I would agree with you. There, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association says it's going to pursue a judicial review. Do you see that going anywhere?
1: No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, it depends how you define anywhere, Rick. Right? Uh, you know. It, it, it's it's you know by listing off a, a wonderful litany of from this prime minister, like it, it's it like uh, you know as someone who's worked in, a, in in the premier's office, who's worked in the prime minister's office, you know what issues work for you politically and what issues don't. But if, if you're Justin Trudeau right now, and every day you're dealing with skyrocketing inflation, skyrocketing interest rates, Chinese spy balloons. A uh, leak reports in CSIS that you'll turn a blind eye to the Chinese government helping elect liberal candidates. Uh, You know, the uh multiple ministers forking over taxpayers' money to hire their friends. You're staying in $6,000 hotel rooms. Your government has a troubling uh, uh fondness for handing out big checks to anti-Semites. Um, you know, the best days this prime minister's had over the last six months is when he's had the opportunity to tee off on the convoy. His best day, for me, I look back over the last four or five months, was when he testifies. It literally was the day when he owned it. And so I think Justin Trudeau would love to have a running debate with, with Convoy supporters. You see his the, the ministers and MPs and his government teeing off on Mr. Polyev right now about it. This is an issue that works for the prime minister. They were like, you know, what a, even the timing of the report came out on the same day the Globe broke the story. That the Liberal Party was being aided by the Chinese government. Like the exact same day. Like this has been a gift that keeps on giving for Trudeau. And every step of the way, he has not looked at anything other than eager. He tries to mouth the right solemn platitudes, oh, about the lead the process and the review and all of that. This has been a winner for him. So the longer anybody keeps this issue alive, the better it is for the prime minister. Because in a in a country where he's losing on issue after issue after issue and it's hurting him in the polls, this issue. Brings liberal supporters back home, so you know I think it's a political winner for him.
0: We only got about a minute. Can Pierre Pouliev make this issue a winner for him? Can he turn the tables on the PM?
1: Well, it it already was a winner for Mister Pouliev in, in that you know a lot of pe- a lot of people in who are uh, who uh, are fundamentally angry and disenchanted and disenfranchised in this country were looking for a voice, looking for a champion. They clearly didn't see it. With Aaron O'Toole when he was leading the Conservative Party, uh, when he when 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 Pierre Polyev ran for the for the leadership of the of the Conservative Party, he gave a lot of those people a voice, and part of it was because he refused to demonize and engage in the name calling that the, that so many of the establishment and elites in this country wanted to do about the convoy. It helped make it given the resounding mandate to be a Conservative leader. Um, you know the people the people who are mortified, the people who believe the convoy was a bunch of fascists. They are probably not accessible voters to conservatives anyway. The same way the people who believe that Justin Trudeau was a dictator, and the and, and the EA and the and the uh, Emergencies Act was a brutal uh, affront to civil liberties aren't accessible voters to the liberals. Uh, you know, there's a lot of it's it's really people who don't have super strong opinions on this matter that these. Uh, so this issue, you know, he's yeah, Pierre has positioned himself quite clearly. Uh, as the voice for people who are lost and disenfranchised or hurt by the status quo, uh, that's not going to change. Uh, And and the attacks coming his way is really about the Liberal Prime Minister showing up his own political base.
0: International Olympic Committee making some waves, or at least there's some smoke here. And we're trying to find, where is the fire? Well, the IOC is reportedly thinking about creating a rotating list of permanent host cities For the Olympics, in this case, the Winter Olympic Games. And we instantly think of Vancouver 2010, Calgary 88. And in fact, one of the cities that the IOC is apparently thinking of is Vancouver. Robert Livingstone is a senior producer and award winning journalist with GameBids.com, a member of the Olympic Journalists Association and the International Society of Olympic Historians, and joins us now on The Roy Green Show. Robert, how are you today? Good afternoon. Is the IOC truly looking into this, or is this just a a trial balloon to gauge everyone's reaction and interest?
3: You know, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it, You know, they, they first raised the issue in December when they found out they, they didn't really have a viable candidate for 2030, and they're running out of time to, to cite those games. So I think they're looking for cities to put up their hands. Uh, they're, they're, they're creating urgency that if you want to host the games sometime in the near future— um, get in now and you can become permanent host. Um, you know, it's very preliminary in their planning. So, And they've said that, that, you know, this isn't for certain, but, uh, you know, they want cities coming forward, viable winter Olympic cities coming forward to uh, com- to make a commitment at this time.
0: Do you think, I mean, you've been looking at this issue and, and studying the Olympics and talking Olympics for years. Do you think this is a good idea, having permanent host cities in every Few years, they, they get a games.
3: I think it will be a real challenge to execute for the IOC. Um, you know, if there's three or four cities and, and a city gets it every 16 or 20 years or or so, um, so much changes, governments change, the economy changes, you know, venues need uh, repairs or rebuilding. Um, I don't know of any city that can really truly make that kind of commitment and, and stick to it. So the IOC might be looking ahead thinking, okay, a city might step back and then they're back to the drawing board. Um, as well, who will the IOC choose and how will they do that and who will be left out? Those are the key things. Three or four cities is not a lot. You've got three continents that typically host the Winter Games and cities on all those continents that, that'll you know be really interested in, in being one of those permanent hosts.
0: I mean, choosing Olympic host cities right now is very political, right? There's some collusion involved, or at least some corruption involved that people have intimated over the years. If the IOC says, listen, we need whatever the number is, five, eight cities that are going to be permanent host cities. uh, Do you see corruption being involved in which cities eventually get the games?
3: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, it, it, it's the stakes are really high. So as you know, when the stakes are high, there's going to be uh, different ways of, of, of cities winning those games. Corruption, one of those politics. I mean, you can expect all of that, especially with the IOC. Um, I, but, you know, if you're looking at, you know, five, even that many cities, how many years away? Uh, you know, it's 20 years away, the first city. How can they commit to that? It just really seems like reach, a, you know, a, a far reach for me. Um, I think it's a way right now the IOC saying, hey, we need someone now. Put up your hand now and don't be left out.
0: Robert Livingstone is a senior producer and award-winning journalist, GamesBid.com, and a member of the Olympic Journalists Association and also the International Society of Olympic Historians. We're talking about the idea. It's only an idea at this point. The International Olympic Committee is eyeballing uh, maybe a group of permanent host cities. Vancouver could be in the mix to host future Olympic Games. When it comes to the Olympics, we know that the sponsorships are massive. We're talking billions upon billions of dollars. How do you think the traditional Olympic sponsors feel about this idea?
3: Uh, I I don't think this will be a problem uh, for them. I don't think actually it'll change anything for them. I mean, they still have the same opportunity I mean, we're talking about domestic sponsorship, So, you know, that'll be different because you'll have some cities that will get that in cycles still far apart. Um, the the top sponsors, if they the IOC calls them, that sponsor the, the entire games um, won't make much of a difference for them. They still get that exposure, um, maybe limits them into new markets if they want to go into fresh markets, like they did in uh, Beijing uh, last year for the winter games that was exposing a new um yeah, a new group of people to, to the Winter Olympics and to possibly to their brand. Um, that will be missing. But I think the opportunity is still there and they and welcome having, you know, some consistency and some permanency in, in the future of the Winter Games.
0: When it comes to those Canadian cities who could be perfect places for a permanent host city, beyond Vancouver and maybe even Calgary and maybe Montreal, they hosted in 76, do you see any other cities... Potentially vying for this permanent host city stipulation or or badge, if you will,
3: in Canada for the Winter Games, you know, at Vancouver and Calgary. That's that's all there is really that that have you know the venues and and the terrain and and the climate to do it. So we're limited to that in Canada. Um, if you look at North America as a whole, obviously Salt Lake City is is the uh, is the Goliath. I think on on the continent, um, they have venues, they have the climate, they have a strong backing by the United States and the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Um, That's going to be North America.
0: Yeah, you sound about right. You know, Montreal would be interesting if they had the skiing portion, you know, a little bit up north, Mont-Tremblant, not too far away. But at the end of the day, there are so many other games, venues and infrastructure that has to be built to accommodate these events.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the sliding track, and you're talking about a ski jump. Those are the main cost venues that don't have a lot of use outside of the Olympics and, and you know, certain World Cup uh, tours. So, uh, yeah, I would leave Montreal out of that equation for sure because there's a lot. More- Families have a lot going on.
2: Is it going to transform the health care system a 2%? No, it's not. But can we
0: deliver health care in a better fashion, more efficient way of delivering health care? I truly believe we can. So that is Ontario Premier Doug Ford, clearly cautiously optimistic that new federal health money is going to make our beleaguered health system better. Further to that, it appears that after agreeing to a new health care funding formula, with the provinces, the Trudeau Liberals have enjoyed a, a a surge in public opinion polls. New Nanos Research poll shows the Liberals and the federal conservatives now in a dead heat. Nick Nanos is the founder and chief data scientist with Nanos Research and joins us now on the Roy Green Show. Nick, how are you? Great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, is this latest poll easy to explain? And I say that because health care has jumped to the number one issue again. The Trudeau Liberals have rather swiftly, I might say, hammered out a healthcare deal with the provinces. And so, you know, more Canadians might be saying to themselves, hmm, that was pretty impressive. Maybe Team Trudeau has gotten things right.
2: Well, you know, I think what's interesting is that we started off the year in 2023 with the Conservatives with a pretty firm advantage, you know, anywhere from six to seven percentage points. And, you know, that's when Pierre Poilier was hammering away on the cost of living and the rising cost of groceries. He had those, remember the YouTube stuff with the toast and the yep. bacon? Well, people might've made fun of him, but that actually worked. But you know, the thing is, is that the focus over the last four weeks on healthcare has done a number of things. First of all, now healthcare has pulled ahead of all the issues of concern compared to other things like inflation and the rising cost of living. So it's now clearly the number one issue. The other thing is, is that the liberal numbers have gone up over the last four weeks as there's been discussion and speculation and now a deal between the uh, federal government and provincial governments. And where's Pierre Poiliev been in the last four weeks? I don't know. Are there crickets playing? (laughs) We
0: we can hear him in the distance.
2: You know, he hasn't he hasn't even really engaged on health care. And I think as a result. You know the the liberals are are back in the game now. To say that they're surging ahead of the conservatives, that's not the case. But they're back to being competitive compared to the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023.
0: So can you see a correlation to really the the absence of Mr. Polyev in this discussion to the the vaulting forward yeah. for the Trudeau Liberals?
2: Yeah, they're basically in uh, in in lockstep. The Liberals regaining ground uh, while they're, uh, while, while healthcare has been a top national issue and concern. And, you know, the narrative has been, you know, how much will the liberals give? When will they give it? How will they give it? You know, what's the deal going to be like? And, you know, the thing is, is that over that whole period, uh, Pierre Poiliev has not had the same kind of profile that he had before. And as a result, you know, it, it's allowed the liberals to be more competitive than they were, uh, you know, four, five, six weeks ago.
0: Our guest on the Roy Green Show is Nick Nanos, founder and chief data scientist with Nanos Research. The latest polling showing a dead heat between the federal liberals and the federal conservatives. And it wasn't that way just a few weeks ago. Nick, as I said before, you know, despite weeks and really months of griping by the premiers for more healthcare funding, they got just, I think it was $46 billion over the next few years. Uh, And I say just because, you know, it's a mere 2% increase instead of the 13% they were looking for. After all that grumbling, the PM calls a meeting, gathers all the premiers together, and now they're putting the finishing touches on this new healthcare funding formula. Did Did the quickness, did the quick resolution on Canada's number one topic, let's not forget about that, play a part in the polling numbers we're seeing today?
2: I think so. And, you know, the fact that the premiers have accepted, right, like, I don't think the numbers would have been the same if the premiers had said that's a bad deal. We're not going to accept it. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, even though there was a big gap between what the premiers, the provincial premiers wanted and what the feds ended up giving, the reality is, is that as soon as they accepted the deal and the money, they basically handed Justin Trudeau a bit of a political advantage because it was like, no longer about how much it was like that there will be some more money. I, and, you know, for the premiers, I guess from their perspective, it's like anything is good and at least they got something out of it.
0: Many of these premiers are conservative premiers. Um, I, I would suspect that Pierre Poilievre was probably thinking to himself, like, guys, don't don't take the first deal. You can like s- string this out a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think so. And, you know, but the, the thing is, is that for a lot of these premiers, you know, like why don't we just, take for example Premier Ford in Ontario you know what there's a lot of pressure on the public health care system he wants to try to uh, improve things and and the thing is is that Ontario is probably going to be one of the bigger beneficiaries because they're just it's just a larger province and it will be getting uh, getting more from the federal government compared to some other provinces at least on a on on a dollar on a dollar basis so you know They've got their own political interests uh, at heart right now, which is why they uh, why the why the provinces accepted the funding.
0: Now, despite, you know, recent uh, uh, surge in the polls or at least a little bit of wind in the sails to the Trudeau liberals, it, it may not all be sunshine, lollipops and rainbows for the grits because you have your eye on the NDP. Tell us why.
2: Yeah. You know, the thing is, is that for the new Democrats, Uh, whenever they uh, start to do well and competitive and, you know, now they're kind of teetering in about the 20% range when they start to move up in the polls, that's bad news for the liberals. The other thing is, is that uh, in the province of Ontario, uh, the vote splits and the distribution of support is actually helping the conservatives in terms of picking up more seats. If you remember in the last couple of elections, you know, the conservatives would have big wins in the West and the liberals would win thin margins across a whole bunch of ridings. Well, that led to the Liberals being more efficient at generating seats. But right now, the Conservatives are generally doing better in the province of Ontario than they have been in quite a long time. And as a result, I think at last count, we have the Liberals losing up to 20 seats in Ontario with 10 of those seats going to the Conservatives, the federal Conservatives, and the rest being up for grabs. So you know, I think if the NDP do well, if they start to creep into the 20s, it'll be a big spoiler for Justin Trudeau.
0: Could this also be a launching pad for Mr. Poliev to say, "Hey, listen, if you're voting for the Liberals, it's almost like voting for the NDP."
2: Yeah, I think that's what he's I think that that's what he's hoping for. But, you know, the thing is is that for Pierre Poliev, his biggest ally, political ally right now, not ideologically, but just strategically, is the NDP. He needs the NDP to do well because whenever the NDP do well, it splits the vote. That's how Stephen Harper won a number of successive elections. Not just because he ran good campaigns. Stephen Harper won because the progressive vote was split and it allowed the conservatives to pop up the center. So I think for Pierre Polyev, he's probably going to be continuing to attack Justin Trudeau to drive voters both to the conservatives, but also for those that won't vote conservative, to drive those progressive voters over to the orange team.
0: We have a couple more minutes with Nick Nanos, founder and chief data scientist with Nanos Research. How does Pierre Poiliev play up to that? And is is the next election going to be more than just the Ontario battleground? Is BC and is Atlantic Canada very much in play?
2: Well, Ontario will be, I, I think, the biggest battleground because for the for the federal conservatives, mathematically, it is very difficult for them to win an election, not win an election, form a government is probably a better way to describe it. It's difficult for them to form a government unless they do really well in Ontario. British Columbia could be a massive wild card because the Liberals, the Conservatives, the do Democrats, and let's throw in the Greens, are all competitive in uh, in British Columbia. And depending on vote splits, they can go either way where they could help either the Conservatives the new Democrats, or even the Liberals in some circumstances. Atlantic Canada, less so, because there could be some changes, but there just aren't enough seats to really tip the balance in favor of one party or another on the national scene in Atlantic Canada.
0: One party we haven't really spoke about is the Bloc, which holds a number of seats in Quebec. That could be a wild card, too. Absolutely. and You know,
2: the Bloc has had a bit of wind in their sails with two things. First of all, uh, the federal government talking about using the notwithstanding clause And then the uh, controversial appointment from the federal government for the individual that was there to fight Islamophobia, you know, with the premier of Quebec being against both of those and also the leader of the Bloc Québécois. And those two issues have actually helped the Bloc Québécois and their competitiveness in the province of Quebec. And, you know, for the Bloc, it's never whatever they do. They need something to happen outside of Quebec that mobilizes Quebecers. (laughs) And they've had a bit of a windfall
0: in the last few months federal government announcing plans to develop Canada's long-awaited black justice strategy. Now, Ottawa committed to doing this back in the 2021 federal election campaign. And this week, we heard from the Department of Justice that said this plan, the strategy is going to identify ways to address systemic discrimination and anti-black racism in Canada's criminal justice system. And there's no question, none at all, that this new plan is needed. For instance, this is just a, one little nugget in this whole conversation we're about to have that despite making up less than 4% of Canada's population, 8% of the prison population in this country are black. But here's the question, too, is will this strategy weed out systemic racism in our criminal justice system? Well, let's ask an expert. Zilla Jones is a criminal defense and human rights lawyer with Jones Law Office in Winnipeg and joins us now on the Roy Green Show. Zilla, how are you today?
4: I'm well, thank you. How are you doing?
0: I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us on this weekend. You work in Canada's justice system. How would you uh, how would you evaluate um, this system when it comes to discrimination and anti-black racism?
4: Well, I think our justice system has a long way to go still. Um, I do see a lot of um, inequities in the system on a daily basis. And they start from the point of policing where certain communities and certain people are over So we've heard a lot about racial profiling. And I will often have cases that start with a car full of young Black men gets pulled over for no no particular reason and the police kind of poke around and they look and maybe somebody has a warrant or maybe somebody has some drugs or something they're not supposed to have. But the thing is that's happening in cars full of people of other races as well. They're just not getting pulled over. So there's an over, over over-focus on the black community as well as indigenous communities as well. And then those inequities continue through the system. So we often see um, with sentencing that Black individuals are receiving longer and disproportionately harsh sentences. They are more subject to mandatory minimum sentences than others. And then once they get into the correctional system, we know there's problems with parole as to who gets granted parole. Indigenous and Black offenders are less likely to get early release. They are more likely to be victims of abuses in custody by staff. And so we see this thread throughout the system of worse outcomes and inequities.
0: As part of this strategy finally announced by the federal government, Black communities across ca- uh, Canada are going to be consulted by a steering committee. Uh, are you going to be on that committee? And, and either way, what information do you anticipate is going to be collected?
4: Yes, I. Um, there are two report writers. So myself and Dr. Kwasi Owusu bempa are going to be writing the final report for this strategy. And so we attend all the steering group meetings, which also have I believe there's seven other individuals from across the country. So they represent black communities in uh, Winnipeg, in Toronto, in Montreal. I think Halifax is represented. Um, I think British Columbia is. So they are a cross section of different, different provinces. And we are to meet regularly. So once a month, twice a month. And determine the direction that the consultations will go. And then there will be consultation sessions with the communities on the ground in all the major centres across Canada where people will be invited that have had experiences with the justice system, whether they've been an accused, whether there's somebody that has had interactions with police, whether they have a family member in the justice system, maybe they work in the justice system, um, they will share what their concerns are with us. And then that will hopefully be incorporated into the report. And so it is the hope that This will be very much driven by the communities on the ground and by the grassroots.
0: Zilla Jones is a criminal defense and human rights lawyer with Jones Law Office in Winnipeg. And it's going to be a part of this steering committee that will be visiting uh, communities across this country to formulate this black justice strategy. When it comes to this plan, it's aiming to uh, reform, uh, modernize the, the criminal justice system. What pillars must be in place to make this work?
4: Well, I think the challenge in addressing issues in the justice system is that it's really the end of a number of other failures. So whether it's time people are involved in the justice system, they've been through the education system, they've been through a child welfare system, they've been through um healthcare system, they have had employment or not had employment, not had training. So there's a number of pieces that lead to people becoming involved in the criminal justice system. So we can't fix all of that quickly. This is an evolving and time-consuming task. So our goal is to identify the areas where there can be changes made that can be done relatively quickly. So there will be some changes that can be made and can take effect soon. And then there will be others that I think will have to be more long-term or perspective or, or hopeful for the future as to how we go forward in trying to keep people out of the justice system in the first place.
0: There has been a growing discussion in this country about reforming Canada's bail system. Is that going to be part of this black justice strategy?
4: I know bail is a hot topic right now, and I'm sure you've probably heard a lot about that. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about bail. So the vast majority of people on bail are not reoffending or offending. And it's the sensational cases that we tend to hear about that then scare people and they start wanting to change bail. So If anything, the bail system is already inequitable towards people that don't have money, of which indigenous black and other people are overrepresented. So there is a constitutional right to bail that is in the charter that states that individuals entitled to reasonable bail. So you can't really reform the bail system without having mind that there's a right to bail. And it's only to be denied if the Crown is able to demonstrate that there will be a risk to public safety. They can't speculate. They can't guess. They can't assume there will be. They have to show there is a risk to public safety that cannot be addressed by some other measure, whether it's having a surety, having a cash deposit, having curfew, having restrictions. And so only when a judge has exhausted all of that can they deny bail. That's been the law for a very long time. Obviously, this committee, we can't change the Constitution. We can't change the law. We can't change what the Supreme Court has already said. Certainly, the government can try to make changes if if they wish, but they have to be in compliance with the Constitution. So I think at this point, we don't have, in terms of the steering group and the, the report writers, we're not coming in with preconceived notions. So we're not coming in saying, We have to do this about bail. We have to do that about bail. We're here to listen. And if concerns about bail are coming up, whether it's concerns about bail being too easy to get, whether it's bail being too hard to get, our job is to bring those concerns forward and make recommendations. So at this point, I think we're open to any possible comments that might be made, but we don't have a preconceived idea of what should happen with bail.
0: As you probably already know, there is going to be a lot of heavy lifting ahead. When do you start meeting with the public? And- And ultimately, how soon would you like to see this strategy, whatever it ultimately looks like, how how soon would you like to see it implemented?
4: Well, they have provided timelines. So the government's timelines are that the consultations are to start imminently. So we've already been having uh, scheduling discussions about when to have a steering group meeting. And the intention, I believe, is to have those meetings in the spring. So March, April, May, to be having those consultations. They would like to have a draft of the report completed by December and the final report out in March, April 2024, and then start implementing right away where possible. So this is this is on a tight timeline, and it's going to be happening.